Let's uh, turn to Matthew 22. We're going to be reading verses 15 to 22 this morning. And as we begin, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible right in front of you. See in the pew right in front of you. I'd like you to consider um, our purpose this morning. If you think of anything that you use, anything that you have that you that you use throughout the day, it has a specific purpose. And you can use it for other things, but it doesn't work that well. Consider like the doctor who has specific tools, and they work very good for an operation. And you consider a roofer who has hammers that are made for that job, staplers, shingle eaters, that are made for that job. But if you were to switch those around and you were to give a doctor a shingle eater and he was about to take out your appendix, it wouldn't work well at all. You know, I, th- I believe that the Bible teaches that we have a purpose, a specific purpose that our Creator has given and created us to do. And a lot of times we do other things with our lives than what we were created to do. Kind of makes, makes you realize maybe that's, why, um, maybe that's why I feel this way in life. Maybe I'm not doing what I'm created to do. There's a saying that says, uh, I was born to, you can fill in the blank, I was born to run. I was born to play this sport. I was born to be a farmer. And I would argue with that. And I would say, maybe the Lord has equipped you so that you are an excellent athlete. But that's only what you do. It's not who you are. It's not what you were created for. I know when, I, when my wife and I first moved to Montana, I believed that my identity, that who I was, was I wanted to be, I, I thought I was born in the wrong century. I wanted to be a cowboy. I wanted to be a mountain man. I, I thought that that was my identity. And I remember when the Lord did not allow for those things, at least in my timing, in my life. And it really made me question, like, who is Andy? What purpose do I have? What value do I have? And this morning as we read, I'd like to encourage you with what the Lord's been teaching me. That's only the things that we do. It's not who we are. Let's read Matthew 22 together. We'll start in verses 15. We're going to be looking at men who had a specific purpose. And what they chose to do to get their purpose was to manipulate Christ. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him, Jesus, in his talk. And they sent to them their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. 
So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, It's Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Before we begin digging into the verses of this passage, I think it's important that we understand the, the context and what is going on, especially before what we read. It's Passion Week. It is the last week that Christ walked the earth. He's about to be crucified. It's the Passover, when multitudes of Jews would gather in Jerusalem and sacrifice the Passover lamb. And I think we get this idea, multitudes, and we're thinking hundreds, maybe thousands. Think possibly three to five million people compacted in a city that's about twice the size of Bozeman. And then on Sunday, Jesus rides into town, and it says that the whole city was moved. And they were saying to one another, who is this? This is no small thing. The multitudes are lining the streets, welcoming him as the king. On Monday, the next day, Jesus wrecks the temple. He walks into the temple. He turns over the tables. In Matthew 21, 12, it says that he drives them out. In Mark eleven sixteen, it says he would not allow them to come back through. This infuriated the Pharisees. It infuriated the high priests because it had, it had attacked their personal purpose. Jesus had attacked their power. Everybody looked to these men in leadership. These were the spiritual men who knew the word. They lived it by their examples. People respected them. And here comes Jesus. He warns them of who they are. And the people have suggested that, is Jesus the king? Do you remember what they cried in the streets? Hosanna, save now. Could he be the Messiah? Jesus had attacked their power. He'd attacked their pride. These men, Jesus says, they love the praise of men. And Jesus warned that these men were hypocrites and blind guides. And now Jesus has walked into the temple and he's attacked their pocketbook. The temple was big money. It was a crooked business. The temple had made them wealthy men. And uh, Jesus had turned it over and called them out. Monday night in Mark eleven eighteen. They gathered, and they're trying to figure out how Jesus must be, Scripture says, destroyed. We can't allow this man to continue if we want to live our purpose. Do you feel the tension? All of these people yelling for Jesus to be king. The Pharisees, who are realizing that their power their pride in their pocketbook is being stripped away. And add to that, all of the Romans who are in that same context, the Roman soldiers trying to keep the peace amongst all of this. 
Let's turn, let's turn to our passage in Matthew 22. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. You see, they couldn't just arrest Jesus. They couldn't just do that because the, the multitudes thought that he was a prophet. When we don't get what we want, when we don't get our purpose, we'll find that these men, they're going to pretend, they're going to ignore, and they're going to try to manipulate so that Jesus will trip up in his words. And they came up with a genius plot. It was a double-edged sword. It was a cloak and dagger. On one side, in Luke 20, 26, they hoped the multitudes would turn against Jesus. But on the other side, if that didn't work, in Luke 20, 20, they figured if the multitudes don't turn against him, we'll get the Romans to turn against him. One way or the other, we've got to destroy him. And so they came up and, with a plan. And for this to work, they couldn't go. They couldn't approach Jesus because he would see them coming. So they sent. Matthew twenty two sixteen says, They sent to him, here's their plan, their, their disciples with the Herodians. The disciples and the Herodians. They have a specific purpose for this plan to work. The disciples were the, they were the future Pharisees. They were the men who were being trained by the Pharisees for the next generation. In Luke 20, 20, they're described as spies. Spies, listen to this, who pretended to be righteous. They were men who looked really good on the outside. They knew the law. They appeared to keep the law. They did all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. And they hated the Herodians. You know, I... I've, as I read through these passages, I see myself kind of played out. There's, there's times when, you've probably been there, when, when you know what God's Word says. There's, you know there's things in your life that you should do, and Scripture says you shouldn't. Or you know that there's things that in life that you should do, and Scripture says that you shouldn't do them. And we choose to ignore them rather than obey them. That's what these men were doing. And then on the other side was the Herodians, who, by the way, the Pharisees couldn't stand. So they, they imagine these, this unlikely pair going before Jesus. The Pharisees considered the Herodians um, traitors. They were Jews who were on the side of Herod and had been given Certain, they, were, they had been given Roman favor, certain political positions. They had been given rulership over Palestine. They were, the Jews, the, the Pharisees would have considered them secular, not a true Jew. They'd enjoyed the pleasures and the luxuries that Rome had provided, and they didn't like Jesus either. Jesus had called them out. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of the Herodians. And one of their own and all his household had been a convert, which to add insult to injury, one of the Herodians had become a believer too. So these are Jews, God's people, but rather than living according to the purpose that God had for them, they had confused their allegiances with the world. I've been there too. I think of times when I forget 
that this is not my home. I forget that God has said that I'm a sojourner. I'm an alien. I'm just a guy passing through. My investment is not here. It's eternal. I can relate to both of these guys. On one hand, we have a, have a representative of false righteousness, the Pharisees. And on the other hand, we have a representative for the world. And these men are coming. They're going to stand before their king. They're going to stand before the Messiah. And because they are so bent on getting what they want, they totally miss who's standing before them. Matthew twenty-two sixteen, they open up and they say, Teacher, teacher, we know you are true and teach the way of God and truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. They open up with words filled with honey. Teacher was a respected position. As one commentator said, we know you teach the straight and narrow, Jesus. They're very sly. Matthew 29, 5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. And that is exactly what they're doing. They're attempting to flatter Jesus with their praises, these these men standing before him in hopes that Jesus will get all puffed up and fall right into their trap. I do this too. Do you ever try to flatter God? You want something for yourself, and so you, like a little, like a little boy or a little girl who comes to their mom and dad, and they give them an extra tight squeeze, and they say, can I please have that candy? Or, Daddy, oh, I love you so much. I've heard that. Can I stay up a little later? <laughs> Teacher. Spreading a net for his feet. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathens do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. We need to consider the motivation of our prayers are we praying for God's will, or are we praying for my will? That's a heart check for me. So the bait has been tactfully set. The men have been put in place. The words of the Pharisees are in their mouth. Words of lies and flattery. Here's the snare. Matthew twenty-two seventeen. Tell us, therefore, Jesus, what do you think? Listen to these words. Is it lawful? These words are, are boxing Jesus in. Is it lawful, Jesus, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Simple question. Yes or no? The taxes were, they were called the poll tax. The poll tax is, stands for the head. Head tax. The Romans would, once a year, they'd have a census. And every citizen, Jewish citizen, would pay one tax per one person, and this was a way that Rome could find out what their human resources were for the Jews. They wanted to figure out what their assets were. These taxes paid for the famous Roman roads, the bridges, and the Roman defense. 
And for a Jew to pay this tax was to acknowledge that they were under Caesar, that, they were, that Israel was under the authority of something other than God is, what, is the way they saw it. They were under Rome and they despised it. The question has two sides to it. If Jesus falters, if he fears the Herodians, if he sees all the crowds, if he sees the Roman officials, and he says, yes, you should pay this tax, what happens? Well, the Jews will abandon Jesus. They will say, this is no king of ours. He's just another pawn for Rome. They will abandon him, and the problem is solved, and the Pharisees can do what they want. But if Jesus is daring, which is what they expected after yesterday when Christ had turned over the tables in the temple and acted very bold, they figured surely he'll be bold today. And if he says no, Jews should not have to pay this tax, now you see why the Herodians are with the Jews, because they will be the perfect alibi to say that Jesus is a Roman rebel. They'll be the perfect witness. And this wasn't the first time that this happened. In Acts 5.37, another man of Judas of Galilee did a very similar thing, rebelled against Rome, and they killed him. And that's what they were hoping for. Matthew 22.18, Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? It's amazing that our intentions, we think, are hidden from the Lord. We, we, we know that he sees our actions, but we forget that he sees the intentions behind our prayers. He sees the intentions of why we said that. In Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart I test the mind, even to give every man according to his way, according to the fruit of his doings. The Lord is well acquainted with our intentions and our mind. John 2.24, but Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Hebrews 4.13 says this, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, whose sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Our intentions, what, we, what we're thinking, and behind what we're thinking, Christ knows them well. He knew these men well. He knows me well. And rather than fall into their trap, he exposes their sin and their wicked heart. Matthew twenty two nineteen says, Jesus says, show me this tax money. The tax money was a denarius. It was one, one silver coin, and it was equivalent to about one day's wage for a Roman soldier. On one side of the coin was Caesar Augustus Tiberius. And on the, it also had the inscription, Son of the Divine. And the Jews could not stand this coin. One, because it was a false image. And you know that the Old Testament, their law says you should not bear false witness. Secondly, because the coin 
called Caesar, son of the divine. Who does that make him? Well, that makes him deity. They couldn't stand it. The coin represented Roman authority. And secondly, it represented Jewish dependence because they needed this coin to pay the tax. And here's the irony of this. These men had that coin with the false image and with the blasphemous inscription, and they are so bent on getting Jesus and getting their personal purpose that they miss it. You see, our sin, it makes us blind. We don't even see our own hypocrisy. We don't see our, our own ill intentions. Our sin blinds us, and it makes us fools. So Jesus takes one other step, and he says in Matthew twenty two twenty, whose image and inscription is this? This is no trick question. He just wants, to at, wants them to tell them that they probably have the coin in their hand, holding it to Jesus, waiting for him to say yes or no. Whose image and inscription is that? And they say to him, it's Caesar's. This is no trick question. You see, Jesus is about to teach them an illustration on the purpose of government and the purpose for man. Can you picture him holding it in their hand? Matthew twenty two twenty one. Jesus answers, Okay, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God's. Is Jesus set, setting up two separate powers? There's God's dominion and there's Roman dominion? No, that's what they were trying to do. Rather, Jesus is about to reveal that God is sovereign in his choice over government. Paul puts it this way in Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authority that exists is appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. You see, God has a purpose for government, and they ignored that. Think about, if you, like, think about the book of Judges and all of the kings. I went through Judges, and I just looked at so many kings that were not Jews that the Lord raised up for a purpose. It was the Moab king in Judges 3.12. It was the king of Mesopotamia. In Daniel 5.18, it specifically says that God raised up Nebuchadnezzar. These are not Jews. God did. And these men knew it. It was recorded. So who also raised up Caesar of Rome in authority over Israel? God did. The image of the coin was the testimony of who God had sovereignly put in authority. So Jesus says, therefore, render, give back what is due where we get our word rent. Give back to Caesar what is his. Caesar's image is on the coin. Then give back to him what's his. And give to God what is God's? You can imply render to Caesar and render to God. 
What's God's? Money? Of course. God owns the, the cattle on a thousand pastures. What do we have that we haven't been given? But I'd like, to, I'd like you to think about this. Jesus is teaching here about money. And he is teaching that he puts government in authority, and we are to submit to that. But is this passage just about money? The Pharisees, it wasn't about money. It was about tricking Jesus. Money was just a pawn. Is that what Jesus wants from us? Just for us to go pay our taxes and be good Christians? Is he trying to make us into Pharisees where we do the right thing? No, he wants us to do the right thing, but for the right reason. See, this passage, the second half here that we're getting into, is why we don't want to pay our taxes. It's why we don't want to do things. It's because we're wanting something. We want what we want. These men wanted what they wanted. They wanted Jesus out, and they wanted authority, and money was a pawn. And Jesus is about to, to uncover their second hypocrisy. What is God's? Let's stick with the image on the coin, and we'll, I'll give you a clue. What image is on you? It's interesting that um, Jesus uses the same word for image that is in the Greek Septuagint for Genesis 1.26, that man is created in the image and likeness of God. He could have used other words. These men knew this. The image of God had been stamped deep into the fiber of these men, but they intentionally We're ignoring the purposes of God. That's why Jesus said, you're hypocrites. You know the word. You're Jews. And rather than submitting to the purpose that God has for you, you're doing something totally else on your own. I'd like us to take a second here and to consider this. This is something that I've been considering a lot in my own personal life. And that is the reminder of what we were created for. You and me are created for God. We're God's. He's the creator. We're the creation. He is God. We're the work of his hands. Pastor Brian said something last week that really struck me. He said, a Christian doesn't even have the right to think on his own. He must take his thoughts and they must go through the grid of Scripture and line up. We can't just do anything we want to do. In Genesis 1.26, the blueprint of man. Then God said, let us make man in our image and and according to our likeness. I think that verse is probably one of the most profound things ever said about man is that we are made in the image and likeness of our God. And there is so much that you could read about what it means to bear the image of God. There's theology books written. We could go on and on. I'd like to make it very simple for us to think through this morning. Let's consider the context of Genesis. 
And in that day, what did image and likeness mean? In that day, when a king would come, and he would take over another city, and he would set up his authority in that city, he would make a statue after he had conquered, and he'd leave the statue, and then he would go on to another city. That statue represented who was in charge. And it had a name, had a specific name called the image and likeness. And it was a visual representation of the king who was not there. A lot like that coin. That coin was a visual representation of who was in charge in Israel. So what does it mean that man was created in the image and likeness of God? I'd like to suggest that we, man was created as a visual, a visual representation of the invisible God. John Calvin said, we are like mirrors. Compared us to a mirror. And we are to reflect God. So that when people see you, it's not that you are God, of course not, but when people see your life, they don't think of you. They think of a marvelous creator who made you. Let me give you some examples. If God, if God is omnipresent, how should you reflect that in life? Well, if God is everywhere, then I should be a man of integrity no matter where I am, because my God is, he, he see, he's the God who sees me. If God is holy, how should I live? What should my standard be for business? What should my standard be for my relationships? What should the standard be for what I look at? If God is holy, I should reflect a holy God. If God is sovereign, that's who he is. How should I live when trials come? If I remember that God is in control. John MacArthur said, the more I understand the sovereignty of God, the more patient I become because I know he's good. If God is love, how should I treat others? How should I reflect God's love? If God is generous, shouldn't I be generous also? When people see me, what comes to mind of the Creator? You see, that's purpose. That is a purpose worth living for. That infects everything you do. If you're on the sports team, if you're in the office, if you're at home, it infects everything you do. Young, purpose, young person, your, your purpose in life isn't to just have fun and to be excited and to go do fun things and be on the sports team and, and hang out with your friends. Your purpose is to reflect your God. Now, the Lord may put you with friends. And he may give you exciting things to do in life. But that's just what you do. It's not who you are. 
You're an image bearer. Student, your purpose is not to get a degree in life and, and, and good grades. You may get a degree, and you should work hard for good grades, but God has placed you in the university to bear his image. If you have a job, your purpose isn't to climb the ladder. It's not to get rich. You may climb the ladder, and you may earn money, but your purpose is that God has placed you to bear his image so that when I see you, I know what it looks like for a godly businessman. And then I would praise the Lord for you. Parent, your purpose isn't to raise perfect kids. It's to reflect the image of God in your home. I take it really serious that I hold two titles that God calls himself, a father and a husband. And I hope with the Lord's help that I bear the image of God with those titles. I want to address suffering a little bit this evening, this morning. Because I think, and I want to, I want to do this tenderly, but I think in our culture especially, we try to get out of suffering. We say suffering doesn't have a purpose. This wasn't from the Lord. Well, then what does that do to his sovereignty? What does it look like for God to work in a person who is suffering? I think of Job who said, though he may slay me, still I will trust him. That's a man who understood that God has got me here, but God's better than the suffering. I want to talk about that in just a few minutes in closing later. Here's the problem is I fail at this daily. I want to reflect God's image, but I don't. I, I'm sure you would agree with me. The reason is, is that because from the chapters, Genesis 1, when I was created, man was created, to chapters 3, something huge happened. The image of God was inverted and perverted, and it was bent and twisted and marred, and the very things that we should be doing, we don't do. Rather than reflecting God's glory, I reflect my glory. Rather than reflecting God's purpose, I reflect my purpose. That's what sin does. It takes every bit of me and wants it for me rather than for, the God, for God. Scripture calls this, it's just rebellion. You were created for this purpose, but rather you're fulfilling your own purpose. And I would suggest to you that that's why so many people in life are empty, discouraged, distraught. They feel meaningless because the very thing they were created to do, they're not doing. They're like a, a shingle eater in the doctor's office. And it's rough. What are we to do? We need to look back to Christ. Back in Matthew 22, here these men are, standing before their creator, trying to twist and to manipulate trying to flatter him for their own purposes. Jesus calls them out, and rather than seeing the light, you know what they do? If you read down, it says they marvel, and they walk away. And by the way, if you read on later in the week, you know what happens? That same day, Judas 
is contacted, the one who betrays our Lord. And I, I find this ironic, that on Jesus' trial, do you know what he's accused of? One of the things he's accused of? Luke 23, 2 says, We found this fellow perverting the nations and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Blind. <laughs> they totally miss it. Lord, help us not to miss it. I want to close with considering two things. Who is Jesus and what did his death accomplish in light of what we're talking about? John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Father. Jesus is the glory of the Father. He's the weight of God. He's the gravitas of who God is. We feel it. Another way I could say it is Hebrews 1-2 says that Jesus is the brightness of his glory. Whose glory? God's glory. And the express image, there's our word, of his person. Jesus is the heat that comes off the fire of God. He's the light. that It's what we see of God. Colossians 1-15 says he is the image of of the invisible God. And Jesus said it another way. He just said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, Jesus is God's image, exact image, because he is God for me. He's our example of what it means to be an image bearer. But that's not it. That's not it. Here's the other side of the coin. Romans 8.3 says, that God sent his son in the likeness, there's our word, our, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was made like me. All God, all man. Philippians 2, 7, Christ made himself of no reputation, taking the likeness of men and being found in appearance of as a man. There's our word again. You see, Jesus is a double, representative, a double representative. He represents God to man, but he also represents man to God. And God takes this double representative, and Isaiah says he crushes him. For the glory of the Father, and for my price of sin that needs to get paid, because sin has cut me off from doing what I'm created to do to live a life that glorifies my Father. He humbled himself and became obedient to the death of the cross, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What was the purpose of this death? You see, the gospel restores man to the created purpose. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, listen to this, to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Who's Jesus? Think Colossians. Jesus is the creator. Colossians 3.10 says, Having put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him <clears throat> who created him. I want us to consider this. The gospel takes the believer through what Jesus did in Romans 1.26, sin has cut us off so we are no longer a perfect image bearer like we should be. 
Jesus comes as the perfect double, represent, double representative, and when we place our faith and trust in Christ, we are restored back to Genesis 1.26 to do what we were created to do. To bear the image of our Creator. Who is our Creator? Colossians says it's Jesus. Jesus takes us full circle. Still wrestling? I still wrestle with this because I still live in a body with eyes that, that don't do a very good job of bearing the image, with ears that don't do a very good job of, of listening to things that please the Lord, with hands that, that don't do things that glorify the Lord, that bear His image. And in our close, closing couple minutes, I want to consider suffering. And I want to be really tender how we talk about this especially if you're suffering, but I want to bring purpose to what you're going through because we all go through it. James 1, 2 through 4, it's one of those verses that's tough to hear. Count it all joy when you encounter trials. And you say, what in the world? Are you serious? Don't tell me that. Because you know that the testing, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. The verse goes on. I want to stop on that word testing. Dakimas. That is an amazing word, testing. It's the word that Scripture uses for, and it should bring our mind to a man who would refine gold. And he would take ore. And he would melt it down in a hot fire. For the purpose of gold is heavy, dross is light, the gold sinks to the bottom, the junk comes to the top. And that, that man, the goldsmith, would look into that crucible and he would see the dirt and he would take a tool and he would scrape it off. And then he would let it cool and he would do the process again and again and he would continue to do that until the gold was perfect and pure. And he would look into that pure gold, and he knew, it was, he knew it would be pure because pure gold reflects the, reflects the face of the person who's working with it. What's God doing in my trial? Here's what God's doing. He's heating up my life. You know what happens when heat is applied to my life? when things don't go the way that you want them, when the doctor gives you the news that you didn't want to hear, when your son or your daughter does the thing, what comes up when your, the hammer hits your thumb? Sin comes up. Heat is applied, and sin comes up. And God has a special tool called repentance that removes through the blood of Jesus our sin and he continues to do that. And as he looks into the, the gold mirror of his life, you know what he's looking for? He's looking for the image of his son. Why? Because he loves his image. He loves his image on you. And he's willing to do whatever it takes. I'd encourage you this morning, consider the sovereignty of God, that he's, he's working and he is a master craftsman.
His, his hammer is not for destruction. His hammer is for beauty. I'd like to close with uh, 1 John 3, 2 and encourage you that it won't always be like this. Beloved, now we are children of God and it is not yet revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Fully, completely. For we shall see him as he is. Matthew twenty two twenty two. When they heard these words, they marveled and went their way. I would encourage you this morning, believer, do more than marvel. I would encourage you, if you don't know Christ, do more than just say, what a good teacher. I'd encourage you to turn and place your faith in him, to trust him, to allow him to make you into the image and restore you to the purpose to what you were created for. Let's close in prayer. Lord, help us to consider well where you have put us and where you have placed us and and what you're doing. And Lord, help us to turn from all of the things that, that we want too much. Lord, open our eyes to the overarching work that you're doing in our lives, Lord. Help us not to be discouraged. Give us strength, Lord, to endure. Help us to look to your Son as our example. Lord, I'd ask that uh, people here who are living in, in pain and trials and discouragement and depression, that they would consider your word, Lord. They would consider your Son. They would submit to him, Lord. Thank you for sovereignly bringing us here this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen.